The story is told about a male frog that was looking for female companionship. And so he decided one day to call a prophet to see what his future would hold. And the prophet said, you will meet a beautiful young woman who will find you very interesting and want to know all about you. Well, the frog got really excited and said, where am I going to meet this beautiful woman? Am I going to meet her at a party? Am I going to meet her at work? To which the prophet said, no, you're going to meet her in a biology class. Some of you are getting that. How many remember doing that in biology class, having to dissect a frog? But you know, the Bible says that we all long to be in relationships with other people. And the reason why is we're made in the image of God. You see, God is a relational being. In fact, God exists in the form of a trinity. And prior to creating us in the material world, God existed in Trinitarian fellowship with the Son and the Spirit. And so if we're made in God's image, it doesn't mean we look like God. One of the aspects of being made in God's image is that we are relational beings just like God is a relational being. And so it is by nature something that we're defined by. Now, I know there are people that don't like relationships. They would rather isolate themselves because they've been hurt. But instinctively, we all desire relationships. And there are different types of relationships. Some relationships that we have with people are very healthy. Some are very dysfunctional. Some relationships are very superficial. Some of them are very deep. And some of them are very meaningful. Some relationships are very peaceful. And some relationships are very acrimonious, but we all live in relationships. And because there are different types of relationships that we have, we relate to those different types of relationships in different ways. Well, what are the different types of relationships that we have? We'll turn to Galatians chapter 6. We're going to look at that this morning, Galatians chapter 6, and this is part one on relationships. Next week, we'll finish out the book of Galatians, part two on relationships, and then we're going to launch into the book of Ephesians. But for this morning, Galatians chapter 6. If you need a Bible, just raise your hand. We'll make sure that you get one. Now remember, just to give you the bird's eye view of what's going on in the book of Galatians, the Apostle Paul is dealing with errorists that had come to the Galatian church. These people that were perpetrating error were known as the Judaizers. The Judaizers were basically imposing Judaism on these Gentile Christians. Paul had gone into Galatia and preached a gospel message that said, you're saved by faith alone, not by faith and works, and many of the Galatians got saved. But when Paul left Galatia, these false Judaizers came in, and they said, Jesus is good. They didn't deny Jesus, but they said, he's not enough. You must keep the law of Moses, and you must be circumcised. And so what they were doing is basically imposing Judaism on these Gentiles. And so Paul takes the first four chapters, and he gives arguments as to why you and I are justified or we're saved by faith alone. He gives well-crafted arguments in the first four chapters. Some of his arguments are doctrinal. Some of them are personal. But nevertheless, he says, you cannot be saved other than faith alone in Jesus Christ. And anyone who adds to the gospel, he says, is preaching another gospel. And he uses very strong language. He says, let them be anathema. Let them be cursed. Well, that's the first four chapters. Now... We have been looking at chapters 5 and 6, and he's going to move from justification, the first four chapters, to sanctification. Sanctification is that process where I grow and I become more like Jesus Christ. 
And notice the link. Chapters 1 through 4 is justification, how I'm saved. Chapters 5 and 6 is sanctification. Sanctification is a natural byproduct of justification. To say it another way, if someone says, well, I've trusted in Jesus, I'm saved, I went to a Billy Graham crusade or wherever they were saved, but you see no evidence in their life of sanctification, you have to question whether the justification took place. Because sanctification doesn't save me, but it's a natural byproduct if I'm saved by faith alone. Now remember, in chapters 5 and 6, Paul is also answering the critics. Because some of the critics are going to say, the Judaizers, that if you're saved by faith alone, all you got to do is believe in Jesus, you can live like the devil. In other words, you have a license for sin. And so Paul is showing in chapters 5 and 6, no, justification by faith alone is not a license to go out and do whatever you want to do. He says, now that you're free in chapter 5, he says, don't use your freedom to indulge the flesh. He says, rather use it to serve other people. Now, remember last week we looked at chapter 5 and he talked about our spiritual freedom and he talked about how to practically stand firm on the freedom that we have in Jesus Christ. Now in chapter 6, he's going to be dealing with relationships, particularly within the Galatian church. Now, remember the Galatians were not doing well in their relationships with one another because if you read the end of chapter 5, there was a lot of backbiting going on among the Galatians and so they were struggling with relationships. They were in the flesh. They weren't treating each other in love. And so what he does in chapter 6 is he gives us the different types of relationships that you and I deal with probably on a regular basis. Let me share them with you this morning. The first relationship that we have is our relationship to sinning Christians, our relationship to sinning Christians. Notice, if you will, verse 1. He says, brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass. Now here, a trespass is a sin. This could be a major sin, or it could be a pattern of sin in someone's life, something that's obvious, something that's visible. He says, if a brother or sister is caught in a trespass, you who are spiritual, who are the spiritual ones? Well, he defined that in chapter 5. He said, they are those who are controlled by the Holy Spirit. They walk in the Spirit. You see, a spiritual person is someone who lives the Christian life, who is committed, who is under the control of the Spirit. Notice it has to be a spiritual person who's going to go to that person and point out their sin. Why? Because Jesus said, you don't have the right to lovingly confront your brother or sister if you're not living the Christian life. Remember Matthew 7? He says not to judge there. And he's talking about hypocritical judging there. He's not saying we're not to judge. We judge instinctively. What he's talking about is hypocritical judging. If I go around pointing out the speck in my brother's eye, but I have a telephone pole in my own eye, Jesus says that is hypocrisy. So the spiritual ones, not perfect, but the spiritual ones are the ones that are go to a brother or sister caught in a sin. And notice what he says here. He says, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. Now the word restore here is an interesting word. It means to set a broken bone. It's to take something that's out of joint and put it back in. You see, some people lose their way spiritually. Even though we're Christians, we're all prone to fall into sin. And he's not saying here, listen carefully, that we're to go around and point out everybody's sin because we all struggle with sin. You're not to walk around and play the role of the Holy Spirit, always pointing out people's failures. 
But what he is saying, if a person is caught in a lifestyle of sin, they're Christians, they profess to be saved, or maybe it's a major egregious sin in their life, we're to go to them in a spirit of love. Why? Because they're at a joint spiritually. They have a broken bone spiritually as it is, and we need to set that bone. I remember I played high school football, and we were playing our rival, and I played fullback my senior year among many other positions. And when I got the ball, as soon as I got the ball, one of my linemen botched and let the other guy in, and immediately he stuck his head right in my shoulder. And I remember when I went down, I felt my shoulder separate. It was very, very painful. I played the rest of the game, but afterwards I had to get treatment for the next several months, and they had to sort of align my shoulder again because it was out of joint. And some people get out of joint spiritually in their walk with God. And you know what our role is? Our role is to go to them and to help them run the Christian race. You see, we're in a race spiritually. And we got to help other people get across the finish line. And so we're to go to them in a spirit of love, in gentleness. He says, looking to yourself, lest you be tempted. That's why we have to go with humility. We have to go with an attitude of love, an attitude of grace, an attitude of patience, and not self-righteousness. And also, we have to be guarded. Because he says, look to yourself. Why? Because you could fall into that same sin as well, and you and I need to be vigilant. But see, this is an important ministry in the body of Christ that we often struggle with because when we hear the word confrontation, it has an ominous feel to it. None of us likes to point out things in other people's lives. And again, we're not to play the role of the Holy Spirit running around pointing out everybody's sin and failure. But we do have an obligation to go to our brother and sister in Christ who is strayed from God and we are to help them spiritually. Now, the temptation is to say, well, this is, this is the role of the leadership. This is why we pay Pastor John. This is why we pay you, Mike. This is why we pay Pastor Steve. You guys are to do this. Well, we do have a role in that, but this is the body of Christ that's supposed to do this. He's talking to the Galatian church. And listen, you do this in your family. If your spouse maybe is straying from God, what do you do? You lovingly encourage them, hopefully, if your children are walking away from God and they've made a profession of faith, you lovingly rebuke them. Well, what's true in our nuclear family is true in the body of Christ. We are the family of God. We have an obligation to one another to go to each other and point out what's going on, especially if a person strays. Now, it may be that a person drops out of church. They've been coming to church and they're no longer here. And a lot of times we go, where's so-and-so? Maybe you could pick up the phone and call them and say, hey, I'm concerned about you, brother or sister. What's going on in your life? But listen, you know what this implies? Body life. This means that we're involved. You know, sometimes the church gets messy because we're not perfect. You know, we're not without spot or wrinkle, as it says in Ephesians chapter 5. That's going to come in glorification when God takes us home. But sometimes it gets messy in the church, and we don't want to go to other people because, look, we don't want to be condemned or we don't want to lose the relationship. And I admit it is risky at times to go to other people. Now, here's an important point you need to understand. Make sure if you're dealing with a brother or sister in an attitude of love, make sure it's an issue of sin. It may be something that there's a warning sign and you want to warn them. That's good as well. Hey, I want to encourage you to watch this because I've noticed this. But make sure it's a sin issue and it's not a preference issue. Because you know what some churches do? What they do is they impose their preferences on you 
and they tell you, well, that's a sin when it really isn't a sin. I got a text this week from a friend in New Jersey. He was part of the, one of the men's group that I started. And there's a guy in the men's group who really wasn't a part of the church that I pastored, but he came from another church, and obviously we welcomed him because he's part of the body of Christ. Well, this particular gentleman is sort of legalistic. And what he did was he basically told my friend who had texted me, you should not be wearing a hat while we're praying at men's group. He said, you ought to take it off out of respect. And I understand that, but he made it a sin issue. And because my friend didn't agree with him completely, what happened was this one guy wrote like a two or three page paper and he distributed it to a bunch of Christians about this guy wearing a hat. And so he texted me and he said, what do I do with this situation? The pastor knows about it. He, he even gave the papers out to the elders. Well, what you're dealing here with is a legalistic brother. You're dealing with a brother who's saved, but who's being sort of self-righteous. And you see, that's a preference of his. Now, I may agree, you ought to take your hat off out of respect when you pray, but don't make a preference a sin issue. And some Christians want to confront everybody over their preferences, over their personal convictions, and say, you know what, you're in sin, brother. You're in sin, sister. Why? Well, because it's their preference. It's not clearly taught in the Word of God. So we got to be careful that we distinguish between those two. Now, sometimes when you go to a brother or sister in love, and I've had to do this over the years, I don't necessarily enjoy it. But you know why God wants us to do it? Because God wants purity in the church. God wants to help that brother or sister mature in their walk with God. But it all comes down to our attitude. Don't look at this as an ominous thing. Look at this as something where you're going to a brother. Notice what Jesus said in Matthew 18. He says this, if your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. Don't pick up the phone and call everybody else about, well, so-and-so is doing this. You see, this is what the church does. The church ends up falling into gossip. Jesus says, if he listens to you, you have won your brother. And so ultimately, we have to be careful that we go in a spirit of love, not self-righteousness. In fact, one leader said this, quote, I have often thought that if I ever fall into a trespass, I will pray that I don't fall into the hands of those censorious, critical judges in the church. Let me fall into the hands of barkeepers, streetwalkers, dope peddlers, because such church people would tear me apart with their long, wagging, gossipy tongues, cutting me into shreds, end quote. He's right. Sometimes the church can be the most unpleasant place. In some churches, you can't admit you're struggling because you'll get judged. And I've seen churches like this where you cannot be real or do what James 5 says, confess your sins to one another and pray for each other that you may be healed. Now, sometimes when you talk to a person in a spirit of love and you go in an attitude of humility, sometimes that person leaves the church. Sometimes it ruins a relationship. I remember a guy in my former church, he got saved, he was baptized. I began to disciple him. And over time, I noticed he dated this girl. And listen, I'm not the date patrol police, but I noticed this girl came to one of our gatherings and I didn't think she was a believer. And him being a new Christian, I warned him and I said, look, it's, I, I don't want to tell you it's a sin what you're doing right now, but it's just not wise because the Bible says not to be unequally yoked. Now they weren't married, 
But I said, the problem is when you start dating a non-Christian, you're more susceptible to fall into sexual sin, and they don't share the worldview that you have. Well, he listened to me, and I kept discipling him. He listened, but he wasn't doing anything about it. Well, then finally, I asked him at one particular meeting, I said, brother, I said, are you, are you following sexually? And listen, I know when people are living together, they're sleeping together. 99% of the time, he put his head down and he said, yeah. And I said, man, you, you, you got to deal with this because it's going to hinder your walk with God. You can't be just comfortable living in sexual sin like this. So I gathered both of them and I had a friendly discussion with both of them. Well, finally, she got so mad, she told him, are you going to listen to Pastor Mike or are you going to listen to me? And he made a decision to listen to her and he left the church. Now, was he a believer? I don't know. That's not for me to judge. But I'm simply saying sometimes it doesn't always end well. I understand that. But God calls us to do what he calls us to do. So is there somebody that you know in your family, maybe a friendship? Now, again, this is professing believers. This is not non-Christians. This is professing believers. Is there somebody that you know that maybe God has nudged you to encourage them, to help them run the race? Don't look at this as an ominous thing, but there are times where we do have to confront. So the first thing he talks about is our relationship to sinning Christians. The second thing he mentions is our relationship to burden Christians. Notice what he says in verse 2 and 3. He says, bear one another's burdens. Notice we're called to bear other people's burdens. This word burden here in the Greek is used of a heavy load. Have you read about these Moroccan women? You'll notice the picture up on the screen. There are these women who live in Morocco, and they're really at the tip of Morocco, which is in North Africa. It's near Spain. And these women, in order to earn a living, they have to carry these loads, which are about 150 to 170 pounds, in order to eke out a living. And I was reading about these women that when they get to the area where they're going to be given this cargo, there is such a mad rush of people going there because they want work. These people are very poor. They get trampled in the process. These women are abused. They're used. In fact, many of them, it has hurt their bodies and their health because they have to carry this heavy load. And there's no one there to bear their burden physically. But Paul says in the body of Christ... You have people that have burdens. They have struggles. Now, the context here is probably they're burdened over sin because he just talked about confronting your brother or sister, but we don't want to limit it to the burden of sin. It could be any burden. You and I know that life is hard. We all have had burdens that we've had to bear in our life. It could be financial. It could be emotional. It could be physical. It could be marital. It could be with your children. Whatever it is, we all have burdens. And you know what? We praise the Lord because God bears our burdens. He sustains us. He gets us through it. And you know what? We thank the Lord for brothers and sisters in Christ that help us bear our burdens. But listen carefully. Why is it we want Christ to bear our burdens? Why is it we want other people to bear our burdens, but we don't want to help bear other people's burdens? Let me tell you why. Because we're very self-absorbed in the American church. The American church has become more concerned about me, myself, and I. We're more concerned about our comfort, our materialism, our family. And what happens is we develop a myopic view of the Christian life. It's about me. And listen, to bear other people's burdens is often messy. It's not easy. It's not difficult. Or it is difficult at times. Look what he says here. Bear one another's burdens 
and you will fulfill the law of Christ. What is the law of Christ? Love your neighbor as yourself. He says, verse 3, if anyone thinks he is something, if you think you're too good, if you think you're self-sufficient, if you think that other people are beneath you, he says you are nothing and you deceive yourself. In other words, don't have this mentality, you know what, I don't want to get involved in bearing other people's burdens. It's messy. It's hard. And it is not always easy. Now let me say this. There are times where you have to draw lines in the sand because there are some people that will suck you dry. You cannot bear everybody's burden. There are some people that are leeches. What happens is they take and they take and they take. And you know what? They don't even want to help their own burdens. And you know what he says in verse 5? If you look at verse 5, he says, we are responsible to bear our own load. What does he mean by that? Well, in bearing other people's burdens... I got to make sure that I'm taking care of my own load and my own business. I got to make sure that I'm doing what I can do. If I'm wanting people to help me financially because I'm out of work, I better be out there looking for work if I'm physically able. I can help you with your children, but I cannot raise your children for you. See, you are responsible, and I am responsible to a certain degree, but you and I know that life can be overwhelming. And we need brothers and sisters that are going to come alongside of us in prayer. They may come alongside us financially. They may come alongside of us by giving us a call on the phone, standing with us, and bearing our burdens. And even when we're struggling with sin, it could be an addiction or some struggle. Most of you heard of John MacArthur. He's a preacher in California. He said a young man came to his office one time, committed believer, but he was struggling with sin in his life. There was an area he was really struggling with, and so he poured out his heart to John, wanting to get comfort and encouragement and assurance. And John said, well, let's pray together. And so John got next to him, and they kneeled down together. And John said, right before he prayed, this young man got up and laid on John MacArthur's back. And you know what he was doing there? It was a symbolic gesture. He was basically saying, I'm depending upon you to help me bear my burden. And you see, we need to be there for people. We got to get involved in people's lives. This is why God doesn't want just Sunday Christians only. See, body life is when we get involved in the lives of other people. That means getting involved, getting to know people. And you're not going to get to know a lot of people on Sunday morning. You can to an extent, but that's why it's so critical that you're involved in a small group. That's why it's so critical you're involved in people's lives. You say, yeah, but Mike, I really just want to come to church on Sunday, and that's all I want to do. Listen, that is not biblical Christianity. You know what that is? That's basically coming to church on Sunday. That's not being a disciple of Jesus Christ. A disciple takes up his cross, dies to self, and gives his life in service to other people. Now, again, as I said, you can't help everybody. You're not going to be able to help everybody. But God wants us to help some people. And listen, find a burden and meet it. You may meet it physically. You may call that person. You may deliver a meal. You may text them to see how they're doing on a regular basis. But we got to stand with people when they're struggling with burdens. I was reading this week about a woman who was living in Syria with her husband. She had three children. And as you know, with Assad there, there's been all this kind of war going on in, in uh, Syria. It's been a bad place to live. Well, her husband owned three houses, made a good income for that area. Well, her husband died, 
in her mid-20s. And so she had to become a seamstress in order to support her family. Well, when the Syrian rebels came into her area and her town, the Syrian rebels killed her 14-year-old daughter. Now, you can imagine this. Your husband dies. You lose your 14-year-old daughter to terrorists. She had to flee her country. Not only did she lose her daughter, they said they burned her house down and her other houses. Now, I want you to imagine that trial and that burden where you are bereft of any support. She goes across the border to Lebanon. And there's all these makeshift houses. It's like a tent community with a bunch of latrines on the outside. She ended up going there, and she's been living there the last five years. She is a Muslim. There's a church in Lebanon that reaches out to a lot of these refugees, and they bear their burdens. And they invited her to come to church, and they gave her food, and they showed her love. In fact, at one point, the pastor said, I want you to teach a class on how to sew, and I want you to teach the other people there so that they can earn a living as well. And you know what? Many Muslims have come to this community, and because of the love of Jesus Christ, and because the church has been willing to bear the burden of these people, World Vision has been helping this church with supplies, they've been able to lead a lot of these Muslims to Christ. You see, when we bear burdens of other people, it makes an impact. And so who are you involved with this morning? Are you an island under yourself? Are you content just showing up on Sunday morning and not getting involved? I want to encourage you, don't be that Christian. Listen, you're missing out on eternal rewards. You're missing out on your retirement package. You see, many people are living for their retirement package now. Listen, the heavenly retirement package is far better than the one here. And you know what you're doing? You're short-sighted by not getting involved in people's lives. And so he says here that in terms of relationships, we're to help sinning brothers, we're to help burdened brothers. Thirdly, he talks about our relationship to ourselves. And there's two things here that he mentions in regard to ourselves. Number one, he says we're to avoid sinful comparisons. We're to avoid sinful or prideful comparisons. Notice what he says in verses four and five, because he knew that People are not going to want to bear other people's burdens. Why? Because of pride. Typically, it's pride, self-sufficiency. We compare. And so he says, each one, notice this is our responsibility, each one of us must examine his own work. Stop comparing yourself to other people, he's saying. You examine your own life. You examine your own ministry. You examine your own attitude. Then he will have reason for boasting. What kind of boasting? Well, you're going to boast in the Lord. Why are you going to boast in the Lord? Because if you evaluate yourself in light of who God is, rather than comparing yourself to other people, you know what that does? It humbles you. So he's saying here, you must examine your own work. Then he will have reason for boasting in regard to himself alone. And notice this, and not in regard to one another. God is the standard of measurement, not other people. And so when I'm looking at my own life and I'm looking at other people's lives, sometimes we can develop a prideful attitude. Here's why. We don't want to confront a sinning brother or we don't want to bear other people's burdens. You know why? Pride. That person's poor. That person's unattractive. That person's dirty. They stink. That person really doesn't offer me anything. Now, we're all guilty of this because it says in Samuel that man judges by the outer appearance. 
And you know, we have to correct our attitude on a regular basis because the temptation is we can develop pride in our heart and we look down on people because they're not of the same color, they're not of the same socioeconomic status, they're different than me, they talk different, they're of a different nationality, whatever it is, we can develop an attitude of pride. And you know what we do? We measure ourselves against ourselves. And Paul is saying, don't do that. He says, measure yourself against God. God is the benchmark. God is the standard. And you know what I do? When I measure myself against God's standards, here's what I'm saying. I'm saying, God, what is my attitude before you? God, what am I doing to help other people? Lord, am I pleasing to you? Lord, is my attitude right? That's what he means in verse 5 when he says you need to bear your own load. What does he mean by that, bear your own load? He's saying you need to take care of your own heart first. You need to take care of your own ministry first. You need to say to yourself, Lord, where am I at spiritually? Am I doing what you've called me to do? Lord, is my attitude right in helping these people or am I being very condescending and judgmental? Am I looking down on people? You see, one of the reasons why people don't get involved and they don't want to get involved in people's lives is because of prideful comparisons. And Paul is saying, don't do that. Examine your own heart. Make sure you're humble. Make sure your attitude is right. Because this stuff creeps into our heart if we're not careful. I was reading about a man who pastored this church. It was in an upscale downtown neighborhood. And the church was known to be very, very snooty, very proud. It was all about money and wealth. It was like a country club with the cross. And this church didn't want to help other people. It was very inwardly grown. And so one day, this pastor of this wealthy church was in a grocery store, and he ran into a lady who was very poor and really didn't fit his bill of what a church member should be. And she said, hey, pastor, I wanted you to know that I visited your church last week, and I'm thinking about joining well, he was taken back by that because he really didn't want her to join. And he said, let's not make a quick decision. He says, why don't you go home and pray about it? And so she said, okay. So she went home and prayed about it. He figured he'd delay her and she would forget and not be a part of the church. Well, two months went by and she runs into this pastor again at the grocery store. And she says, hey, pastor, I wanted to give you an update of what's going on here. Do you remember when I told you I wanted to join your church and you told me to pray about it? She said, I have prayed about it. He said, well, what did the Lord tell you? She said, well, the Lord told me not to bother going to your church. And he looked at her and he said, why? She said, well, the Lord told me that he's been trying to get into your church for a long time and he hasn't been able to, therefore I shouldn't join. You see, this is the attitude of some churches if we're not careful. Well, there's a second thing in relation to ourselves. Not only are we to avoid prideful comparisons, but secondly, in relationship to ourselves, we're to avoid walking in the flesh. Notice, if you will, verse 7. He says, do not be deceived. Don't lie to yourself. You know, we have a tendency as humans to lie to ourselves. He says, God is not mocked. You cannot turn your nose up at God. That's what the Greek says. Now, what can we be deceived about? How do we think we're mocking God? Here's what it is. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. In other words, this is a law that God has established, and you cannot mock God because this law is always true. You can scoff at it. You can laugh at it like America is doing today. It doesn't matter how we live. We can sow seeds of wickedness and not reap a harvest of ungodliness, a harvest of violence, a harvest of sexual immorality, a harvest of abortion. And you see, God cannot be mocked. And here is the principle. Whatever you sow 
this you will also reap. And so what he's saying in relation to ourselves is not only are we to avoid prideful comparisons, but we're to avoid fleshly choices over a period of time. Now, we're not going to be perfect. We're all going to sin on a regular basis. But here, he's talking about a person that's living for sin, that is sowing to the flesh. And he uses an agricultural metaphor. In that day, it was an agrarian society, and we know it today in farming. Whatever you sow in the ground, if you sow apple seeds, you're going to reap an apple harvest. Laura, my wife, loves to plant, and she has a green thumb. And when we moved into our house, when we moved to South Carolina last year, in our backyard, we have this little area where there's dirt, and she planted cucumber seeds, and she planted tomato seeds. And over a period of time, they grew up, and we were able to eat the fruit of that. Now, if I planted a cucumber seed, or she did, and an apple tree came up, you would go, something's off here. See, here's the inexorable law that God has established in the physical realm. Whatever you go put in the ground is going to come out, that particular seed. And what's true in the physical realm, God has established like gravity in the spiritual realm. What is the principle? The principle is this. Whatever you sow, you're going to reap in terms of sinful lifestyle. And the Bible says sometimes we sow, we reap later than we sow, and sometimes we reap more than we sow. Sometimes the consequences do not come right away. Sometimes it's years down the road. But make no mistake about it, ultimately we reap more than we sow, and we reap later than we sow. And so this is a law that God has established, and that's why we have to be careful of the choices that we make, watch this, and the habits that we develop. We all have to wrestle with this, because remember in chapter 5, he talked about the flesh and the spirit warring with one another. We're all in a conflict, and I have to remind myself of the consequences of my choices, because my choices lead to certain consequences, and listen, some people, they make bad choices, and here's what they do. They blame God. Why did God let this happen to me? Listen, God didn't do any of that. You made a bonehead choice. If you rack up credit card debt, and then you say, well, where's God? I tithe. Listen, God's not going to erase all that credit card debt that you spent irresponsibly. If you engage in sexual immorality, and there's a child that comes out of it, the child's a blessing, but listen, that's a consequence of you making a sinful choice. And this is what America doesn't seem to understand. We sowed seeds in the 60s, and listen, we are reaping the consequences now. God said, if you sow the wind, you're going to reap the what? The whirlwind. And this is a law. You cannot make bad choices and then not expect to reap the consequences. And then we get mad at God and we say, where's God? God is there, but here's the problem. We've made bad choices. Now, are you listening? Say amen. There are people, not only in this church, but in all the churches of America, they come to church and they listen to the message of Jesus Christ. They've heard it for years, years, and years, and they've said, no, no, no. And then they die and they go into eternity. And you see, now they're reaping the eternal consequences of their choices in this life because they did not listen to God. And so here's what God wants us to do. He wants us to think about our life, and he wants us to think about the choices that we're making. Are your choices reaping a good harvest, or are your choices reaping a bad harvest? Because look what he says here. He says in verse 7, do not be deceived, God is not mocked, for whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. Notice verse 8, 
For the one who sows to his own flesh will reap from the flesh corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit from the Spirit will reap eternal life. In other words, you're making a choice. You're either sowing seeds that are producing spiritual fruit that are good fruit, that are going to make an impact for the kingdom, or you're sowing to the flesh as a lifestyle, and you're producing corruption, bad fruit, bad consequences. Now, we're not going to avoid this law perfectly because we all have paid the price for choices that we have made in our life. But you know what God wants us to do? He wants us to think about the choices that we are making and the subsequent consequences. We tend to get blinded to the consequences. You say, Mike, but it's so hard sometimes to do the right thing on a regular basis. We get discouraged. Because sometimes we sow, we sow, we sow, and we don't see fruit in our life. Maybe we don't see our kids come to Christ. Maybe we don't see our marriage return to what we want it to be. Maybe we don't see the fruit in our ministry. And so Paul says this as an encouraging word to us in verse 9. He says, let us not lose heart in doing good, verse 9. Because he knows when we sow to the Spirit, we're going to get discouraged at times. We want to quit. It's hard being a Christian. And there are times where we want to throw in the towel and say, God, I don't see the fruit. I don't see the blessing in my life. Imagine that lady that lost her child and then her homes got burned down and she's been living in a tent city for five years. God, where is your blessing? He says, let us not lose heart in doing good. For in due time, we will reap if we do not grow what? weary. And listen, you may not always reap in this life to the extent that you want, but I believe God will bless us if we persevere and we keep sowing to seeds of righteousness. And so some of you are discouraged maybe by your sin. Maybe you're struggling with temptation and you say, God, I have stayed pure and I've been praying for a mate and you haven't brought me a mate. And so you're tempted to cave in and go the way of the world and commit sexual immorality prior to marriage. God says, persevere. Don't quit. God will bless you in the end. Now, sometimes that blessing in its fullness comes in the next life. But the answer is to not go to the way of the flesh and then sow seeds. We're often tempted to do that. You know, my uncle, my mom's brother, he's Middle Eastern, and he would play at these concerts on a regular basis. And he played a particular guitar. It was called the Oud. Now, I wish I had a picture to show you. But it was an interesting guitar, and he would go, and he would play at these particular concerts. And you know what he would do prior to playing? He would drink a little bit of scotch. Well, one scotch turned into two, and then two turned into three. And he did this year after year after year. And you know what happened? He became an alcoholic. And eventually it took his life, cirrhosis of the liver. He died in his 60s. You see, he's sowed to the flesh, he's sowed to the flesh, he's sowed to the flesh, and you reap the consequences. See, that's a law that God has established. And so what does he say in relationship to ourselves? Number one, we're to avoid prideful comparisons, and number two, we're to avoid fleshly choices. Even though we're not going to do it perfectly, we got to keep a short account of sin. Well, there's one other relationship that we have that we'll close this morning with, and that is this, our relationship to spiritual leaders or teachers. Notice what he says here in verse 6. The one who is taught the word, that would be the congregation. He says, the one who is taught the word 
is to share. And the word here is speaking primarily of finances. It's not limited to that, but its primarily focus is finances. The one who has taught the word is to share all good things with the one who teaches him. What is he talking about here? He's saying support your leaders financially. Now, I realize some churches can't do that. There are pastors that pastor small churches and they're bivocational. They're what we call tent makers. They work another job as well as pastor the church. But listen, one of the reasons why a lot of leaders in churches today get, can't get supported is because people are not giving. Now, this is an uncomfortable topic. I know if John was up here, he'd feel uncomfortable talking about it. So am I. But I'm just teaching the Word of God. What it's saying here is we're to support our spiritual leaders, our teachers that are feeding us the Word of God. And here's a principle. Wherever you're being fed, that's where you're to give your resources in order to support the church. Now, I'm not here to tell you how much you should give outside of the local church, and this is a whole other topic. But I think we should tithe to the church. Some people say, well, I give 8% to the church, 2% here. I'm not going to get into that with you. That's between you and God. But I do know this, as a spiritual principle, wherever you're being fed, wherever your burdens are being borne by other people, that's the fellowship that you should give your resources to. And you see, in the Old Testament, it talked about tithing. The people of Israel gave to the Levites at least 10%. It was called the Levites' tithe in order to support the theocracy, in order to support the Levitical system. And so it's true in the New Testament, one of the reasons why you give, and by the way, you're not giving just for institutional survival. You're giving to the Lord because giving is an act of worship. You don't give to me. You don't give to John. You don't give to this campus. You give to God. That is an act of worship before the Lord. Then God holds the church responsible for its stewardship of the resources that he has given to that church. Now, if you can't give to a local church because you don't trust the leadership or you're not being fed, then it's time to find another church. Because I've had people say, well, I'm going to stop giving my money to that church and they're still attending. And I say, no, 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 no. You've missed the point. We're called to give to the local fellowship whereby we're being fed. Now, the Bible does say be discerning because you and I know there's a lot of hucksters out there today. There's a lot of charlatans that are preying on people and that are basically making merchandise out of people. But God calls us to give. I was reading about this particular gentleman, another guy, they went out fishing on a boat and one of the gentlemen makes $100,000 a week, makes good money. And they were out on a boat and the boat got stranded and they were on an island. And while they were there, one of the gentlemen, not the guy who made $100,000 a week, the other gentleman, he was like, we're going to die. We're going to die. He was panicking. He was scared. He said, we had no water. We got no food. And there's no one to rescue us. We're going to die. We're going to die. Well, the guy that made $100,000 a week was just sitting under a palm tree. He was very calm. The other guy said, how can you just sit there knowing that we got no food, no water? We're going to die. He said, listen, I make $100,000 a week and I tithe off that $100,000. He said, my pastor will find me. <laughs> that was a joke. But in all seriousness, be discerning. Be discerning. And so Paul talks about four relationships this morning. Next week, we'll look at the rest. But he talks about our relationship to a sinning brother. 
Secondly, he talks about our relationship to a burden brother. Thirdly, he talks about our relationship to ourselves. And finally, he talks about our relationship to pastors and teachers. Next week, we'll look at the other relationships. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for reminding us that we are yoked in relationships with other people. And Lord, we are all called to live under the law of Christ. We're called to love others as we love ourselves. And I pray that Calvary Chapel would continue to be known as a church that bears each other's burdens, that lovingly confronts and encourages brothers and sisters who have strayed to come back. Help us, Lord, to be humble, not to be proud, not to be arrogant, but to walk in humility so that we can minister to the brokenness of other people who are struggling. And I want you to take a minute right now. There's somebody that maybe you know that's fallen into sin. They've made a profession of faith. Or someone you know that has a burden. Maybe God has been prompting you to pick up the phone, deliver a meal, take them to a doctor's appointment, whatever it is. I want you to pray for that person right now that God has spoken to you about and make a decision that you're going to do something about it. Let's pray. Father, I pray this morning for those who are struggling with burdens. There are some who come this morning with heavy loads. And I pray, Father, Lord God, that we would be willing to listen and hear. And help us, Lord, to use discernment with those, Lord, who just want a sponge and they're not interested in helping themselves. Give us that discernment and at the same time that love. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.